in his book entitled uh, The Call by Oz Guinness, uh, the Christian author, he said these words, First and foremost, we are called to someone, to God, uh, not to something such as motherhood or politics or teaching, or to somewhere such as the inner city or outer Mongolia. First and foremost, we are called to someone before we are called to some thing. That is very much at the heart of our Christian faith, and it's very much at the heart of the text this morning in Matthew's Gospel. As we continue in uh, chapter 2 now of Matthew, if you would turn there, as we continue our series through this Gospel, as you're turning to uh, Matthew 2, we recall that the whole of the first chapter, chapter of Matthew is a focus upon the coming of Christ. First in the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we saw the conception and the actual birth of Christ. But then there's this immediate shift of focus into chapter 2. From the coming of Christ to now how the world responds to his coming. Uh, From the doctrine of God's revelation in Christ to now the doctrine of man and how man responds to his presence. Uh, Some we will see are greatly troubled at the coming and presence of Christ, like King Herod, we'll see this morning and next week, uh, even taking extreme measures to rid and destroy him completely. Uh, But others are going to go the distance. They're going to travel many, many miles in order to be in his presence, uh, to worship him in his presence. And I trust and pray that is our uh, journey. That's our life calling to make that journey to his presence. First and foremost, we are called uh, to someone. So listen now to God's word, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The visit of the wise men. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
There is so much that is very remarkable about this narrative, about this text. The first comes in the opening verse, the opening words of the story. Because immediately after Jesus is born here in Bethlehem, the first people to hear and to respond to the news of this newborn king are not the kind of people that we would expect. It's not Jews living in Jerusalem awaiting for the comfort and consolation of Israel, the comfort of a Savior that we read about with, for example, Simeon. It's not covenant keepers. It's not people on the inside of the uh, covenant faithful community. It's not God-fearers. These are Gentiles. Gentiles. It's amazing. Uh, Not only outsiders, but people from very far away lands. These wise men from the east. Even much more so than the shepherds, as we read about in Luke's gospel. They don't respond in the kind of way that the wise men do. Uh, Bowing down, going this distance to worship before this king. Uh, the first recipients of the gospel, they're, they're outliers, they're Gentiles. And yet that's part of what Matthew's purpose is. The first verse of Matthew surfaces uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, and the promise to Abraham that through the seed of Abraham, who is the Messiah, All of the nations, including you and I, all the nations will be blessed. All the nations, Isaiah says, are going to flow to uh, Jerusalem. And that begins to unfold. And that's how Matthew's unfolding for us the story of Christ, his person and work. Who, Who are these wise men from the east? Well, the word is magoi. It's where we get magi. It's in the plural, so there's at least two. But there may be several more, but it's not necessarily three. Uh, The well-known Christmas carol, We Three Kings, uh, taken from the idea, I think, of the three kinds of gifts that are distributed, gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's not necessarily three. There could have been six, maybe nine, maybe twelve. And the word does not refer to kings, but rather to astrologers or seers. Uh, Some suggest they were a part of a priesthood, a priestly guild of kinds, and most likely from Persia. If it is from Persia that they traveled, it means they traveled a very, very long distance, probably upwards to 600 to 800 miles, probably taking over a month of time. It's not only a very long distance that they travel, but it's all desert day after day, week after week, very hard conditions. Uh, Who of us have ever experienced such a journey? I went last weekend for one night on a cross-country ski trip, six miles, that's it, six miles in, six miles out, and I was in a cabin. It was cold, but I was in a cabin, and I came back and my my bed felt like it was brand new, like I had been away for a month, I was exhausted. I can't imagine uh, this journey that the Magi actually take, but it's a true story. It sounds a little bit humorous, but I think these kinds of conversations uh, must have taken place of of some kind. Uh, What do you tell your family members? What do you tell your wife? 
Honey, I was with the guys last night. We saw a star. We'll be back in May. Uh, We don't know how this all got worked out. Uh, What's the nature of this revelation? How did they really know? Uh, One thing's for certain, among others, they're compelled. Uh, They are driven to go the distance. Driven to do this journey because they know, as verse 2 tells us, that a king, the king of the Jews, has been born. In fact, that's the only sentence that the Magi say. It's the only thing that they speak in the whole chapter. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And he's only an infant. So the question surfaces, what is the nature of this king? What's the nature of his kingdom? He's an infant. He's a child. He can't make any decrees. He can't really rule over anything, it seems. can't even likely walk or talk yet. What kind of king is this? Uh, That these magi, likely traveling with a whole caravan of people, would go this distance, this journey to see this infant. And yet I would propose that their journey is also a picture for us, a kind of metaphor for our life journey. I want you to hold that thought, that their journey is a picture I believe, of our own. I don't know if anybody here has been to Spain in the city of uh, Valladolid, uh, which was the capital prior to Madrid. Uh, There's not only beautiful cathedrals and chapels, sanctuaries there, but there's a monument uh, commemorating the great discoverer, uh, Christopher Columbus. He died in that city in 1506, Uh, Perhaps the most interesting feature of the memorial is a statue of a lion whose paw is reaching around and it's destroying one of the Latin words that had been a part of Spain's motto for centuries because before Columbus made his voyages, the Spaniards had thought they had reached the outer limits of earth. And so their motto motto was uh, ne plus ultra, meaning no more beyond. And the lion is, in this statue, tearing away the word no uh, to make it simply read more beyond. Uh, Columbus had discovered that indeed there is more beyond to see. And the Magi uh, were on a journey to something, to someone more beyond. And that's true for our life journey, I hope, for all of us as well. Uh, their journey to the king, it's not only a picture, it's not only an illustration for us. That journey is a reality for you and me. Because that, that day is in our future. When we will be in the presence of this king before him. And the question is, if you take away everything in your life, if you strip everything away that seeks to shape your identity, your occupation as a homemaker, a teacher, an engineer, a pastor, if you take away and strip away all your material belongings, even your family and friends, the question is who are you in subjection to this king? Who are you in subjection to this king? 
Because that day is in your future when you will be before him in his presence. Uh, We're all on a journey. But what are we after? Truly, what are you after in your life journey? What are you pursuing? What has your attention? Well, how the Magi know the way to the King, uh, the way to the Lord Jesus, tells us much about how God leads us in our own faith journey. Uh, What led the wise men to Christ? The star. We're told about this star twice. In verse 2, we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then in verse 9, they arrive. The star they had seen actually goes before them to Bethlehem. What is this star? It's likely not a natural phenomenon, like a planet or comet. Probably something of a supernatural event. Something God created, but uh, certainly a supernatural event. But what's interesting is that the star doesn't actually lead them directly to Christ. Uh, They see the star mentioned in verse 2, and where are they led? To Jerusalem. They see the star. It does not lead them directly to Christ. They go to Jerusalem. So this star, a part of God's creation, uh, what we might call theologically God's general revelation, we think of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, or Romans chapter 1, that God has made His existence, His divine attributes known through what He has made. This is His general revelation. This star actually leads them to Jerusalem. But Christ is not in Jerusalem. What is in Jerusalem? The Scriptures. The Scriptures are there. So they arrive in Jerusalem. Herod, we're told, gathers the chief priests and the scribes together. They draw upon the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and they reference the prophet Micah. They say the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. And they quote from Micah, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And though the scribes and the Pharisees are going to be great opponents of Christ and His ministry, they know enough of the Scriptures to know the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. It's interesting. The star brings them to Jerusalem and therefore to the Scriptures. And yet it's then the Scriptures, it's God's Word that actually leads them to Bethlehem and ultimately to the Christ. I think that's perhaps significant. Uh, The Magi's journey reminds us it is through the Scriptures, it's through the Word of God that we come into the presence of Christ. It's how we come to faith in Christ. It's how we continue to journey after Christ. This is how the Magi are led. Remember Paul's words in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, and that through the Word of Christ. Uh, in, two, in two chapters, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to hear Jesus, as He begins His ministry, say those words, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
If we desire to know Christ, to worship and serve Christ, to continue journeying after Christ, we should treat God's Word the way Jesus mentions here. We should treat it like we do food, daily, regularly. We are dependent upon it for true life. Uh, that's what physical food in part reminds us of. We're not self-autonomous. We depend upon that which is outside of us to live. And I'm sure the Magi had to plan for food through their long journey. Uh, but when Jesus says man does not live by bread alone, he's telling us something crucial about life. That true life does not consist in our physical existence, but through the indwelling of the Word of God in us, at work within us. I was explaining to one of our children this past week the meaning of the word breakfast, right? that it is a break of the fast through the night. You're breaking your fast. And all of us at times need to, again, break the fast to pick up God's Word, to read and to be nourished by it. It has everything we need for life and godliness. And for every season of life that we might be in, every hardship or circumstance, I don't know what season of life you might be in, but the Word of God contains what is necessary to minister to us in that season. You might be in a dry season, a very hard season. Pick up the Psalms. Read the Psalms. Read Psalm 13, Psalm 42, Psalm 46, if you're in a dry season. If you desire a deeper understanding of God's work in saving grace, study and examine Paul's letter to the Romans. Focus in on Romans 1-8. through If you struggle over the question or know others who struggle over the question of life's purpose, read the book of Ecclesiastes. It exists in, in great part to answer that one question. What is our life's purpose. If you want to grow in perseverance, study uh, the book of Hebrews. And they all point us to Christ. They all point us to Christ, His person and His glorious work. But the other thing the Magi's journey reminds us of is what it is that should define your life calling. The way that you live your life and your faith journey. Now listen again to Oz Guinness. He says, When we discuss our plans and endeavors, we automatically think of notions like our aims, our ambitions, our achievements, and so on. But we often overlook the vital part of audience. Most of us, whether we're aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. A life lived listening to the decisive call of God is a life lived before one audience that trumps all others, the audience of one. We are all living for something or for someone. But what is it? Truly, who is it? The Magi seem to have one audience really in mind. And not only are they compelled to go the distance of this journey, they also face opposition. Their destination, their hopes are threatened because the very presence of Christ is threatened. 
When the Magi arrive in Jerusalem in search of the Christ, the king of the Jews, we're told in verse 3 that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The Magi, they have come to see the king of kings. But then there's another king, Herod the king. He feels threatened. To the point that if you skip ahead to verse 13, we're told that Herod will search for the child to destroy him. And in verse 16, he has all the male children in Bethlehem under age two, perhaps a few dozen, put to death. Herod, we'll learn a little bit more about next week, but he had been ruling as a Roman king of Judea for many years, a few decades But he was ruthless. He had murdered his wife. He had murdered a number of his sons, a number of relatives. History tells us he had been growing increasingly suspicious of any threats to his power, distrustful, on edge, and unstable. Herod was then, and I think still represents for us today, that which will seek to threaten the presence and the ministry of Christ in our lives. Think of Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Those words, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. I want to mention just two things. Many more could be mentioned, but two that I've seen in my own life and in the lives of others that will Uh, threaten and seek to oppose our journey after Christ and His presence, His ministry in our lives. One is the overwhelming weight of shame and guilt. Guilt, uh, the sense that I have done something wrong. Perhaps I have done something wrong. This feeling of guilt. Shame. Shame's a little bit different. Uh, shame is not so much the sense that I've done something wrong, but that there's something wrong with me. Uh, these two, you might call them these twin destroyer, destroyers, they'll seek to completely crush your sense of worth in Christ and joy in Christ and freedom in Christ. And yet, it's in the presence of Christ as we draw near to Him that we can hear Jesus, from his word, say, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, you will find rest for your souls. Shame and guilt. They will seek to threaten and destroy the ministry of Christ in our lives. The second thing I'll mention that will seek to threaten the presence of Christ and His ministry in our lives are giving ourselves to lesser gods. Uh, Those things in life that do not have inherent power, but those things that we will give power to, allowing them to shape and mold our very identity in life. Even very good things in life can become lesser gods. Uh, The Christian counselor Paul Tripp puts it well when he says, good things can become bad things when they become a main thing. 
It's the definition of an idol. Many gods that will vie for our heart's uh, attention and worship. Good things, the pursuit after education, material things, perhaps the need always to be right, the drive for power over others, uh, freedom from responsibilities, a house, a car, even good things. They can become bad things when we give them the place that only Jesus Christ should occupy, His Spirit and His Word. And yet again, Jesus says to us in John 7, if anyone thirsts, if anyone has desires, and we all have them, what does He say? Come to Me. Let him come to Me and drink. For out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. And so the journey to Christ, the journey after Christ, through all of life and this day is worth it. He alone satisfies. But then we finally see the goal of the journey. The goal of the Magi's journey. There's some key words uh, through the text. Three times in just two verses we're told about the reason for the Magi's journey. Verse 2. They say, where is he who is king of the Jews? We saw his star and we have come to worship him. And then twice in verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child and they fell down and they worshiped him. The word for worship, proskuneo, it literally means to fall down and kiss the ground. To fall down and kiss the ground, to worship That's not how we uh, gather and worship, to fall down and kiss the ground, but we have kneelers, which, as an aside, I really like that we have kneelers. Uh, They not only allow us to literally bend our knee to him, but they remind us there is one who is worthy of falling down before. To bow our hearts in humble reverence and adoration to the king. Well, the text and story gives us really two dramatic options. One is a group of Persian, Persians who journey hundreds of miles to kiss the ground before an infant king. The other option is this madman, Herod, who is demanding that you fall down before him. Really two dramatic Options, And yet there's something in the human heart, even in many Christian churches, that want some kind of alternative, some less extreme way, some perhaps compromise, where I can worship Jesus but still serve myself. I think our American uh, culture really resists and rejects too extreme of a worship. This idea of bowing down, falling down before another to worship and serve. The reason worship of Christ the King does not happen is because often we already have a king or queen 
that we are worshiping, and that is ourselves. And worship of self happens in very subtle ways, in very practical ways, too, on a daily basis. It can happen at the checkout line when you're kind of shocked that there's five or six people in front of you and you're thinking, what are all these people doing? Why, why are they all getting food? I'm, I'm the only one who needs food here. They're getting in the way of my plans. Uh, when your son or your daughter or your spouse actually disagrees with your view or your perspective, they have a different one. What's going on here? I'm always right. Or when someone holds just a slightly different theological position than you do and you end that conversation and you think, I'll pray for them. I'll be praying for them. But you know, self-worship is never truly satisfying because we were not made for ourselves. It's not what we were created for. We were made for another. It's why in verse 10, when they come to him for whom they were made, it says they saw the star resting over Christ. It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's a remarkable sentence uh, because Matthew uses four words to express really one feeling, one emotion, one affection that they have. Literally, the, the text can read, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with joy great exceedingly. Matthew could have used one word if he wanted to. If the Spirit moved in that way, they saw the star and they rejoiced. But he uses one word for rejoice, then he uses another word for joy, and then two qualifying words. This is the deepest of joy. Happiness, delight, there's an elation here. But I want us to see that their journey and their joy are inseparable. They're necessarily connected. Your journey of faith and your joy in Christ are inseparable. The journey had much risk, weeks and weeks. To be certain, bandits along the way. They had many valuables and treasures to be stolen. Perhaps times of uncertainty. Are we sure this is the right way? Did we really see what we thought we saw? Is this worth the risk? Why are we giving up so much? But their worship really does not begin when they come before the Christ physically and bow down before Him. Their worship begins in their commitment to the journey. To go the distance. To see Him. And this is what you and I were made for. Their journey is a picture of our own life of faith. Based on the same things. Based on God's revelation to us. Our faith journey is filled with risk, times of uncertainty. The same aim, which is the glory and the worship of Jesus Christ, who is the true source of our joy. Are you on that journey? Are you willing to risk much, because He is worthy. Uh, will we settle for the fleeting 
joys, the passing joys of earthly things. Or seek after Him to rejoice with joy, great exceedingly. Let's pray together. Father, we praise You for the joy that is ours through the presence of Your Son, Jesus Christ, as You walk with us, as You guide us in this journey of faith. We thank You, Lord, that not only will we one day see You face to face, Your Son, Jesus, as the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John. But Lord, we thank You that Your presence is with us always. That You do not leave us or forsake us. We thank You, Lord, that You have given Yourself to us. For You are worthy for us to fall down, to bend our knee, to give our life in service and worship of You. And Lord, we thank You that you meet the deepest longings of our hearts. That you alone can satisfy our deepest desires. We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. That you not only call us to yourself, but you have given your Son as a ransom for us. To purchase us and our great salvation. So continue to bless us and guide us, Lord, as we worship you this morning, this day. And for we pray it in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.